This morning, I want to talk about our reading from the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation is a fascinating book, and we know it comes at the end of the biblical story, which gives it extraordinary significance. If you think of a novel or a play or really any work of fiction, when you get to the end, hopefully you can say, ah, now I see how all the strands of the story come together. And that's what happens in Revelation. It concludes the biblical story. And so we read from Revelation during the Easter season because Revelation reveals to us the final Easter hope. It reveals the future that we believe Jesus has secured for us in his death and rising. So again, this morning I want to spend a little bit of time with our passage from chapter 21 of Revelation. But before I do that, uh, I want to spend some time talking about uh, the arc, the narrative arc of the biblical story so that we can understand how our passage from Re Revelation seeks to resolve that biblical narrative arc. And I want to speak specifically about a metaphor that we meet in our reading from Revelation, and that is the metaphor of chaotic waters. The metaphor of chaotic waters. The Bible uses a lot of metaphors, and one of the, the key metaphors is this metaphor of chaotic waters. Now, the Bible uses metaphors because metaphors are powerful, right? They help us imagine things that we, we can't fully grasp, and so they enrich our understanding of God and God's purposes. And again, one of the key metaphors that we meet from Genesis to Revelation is this metaphor of chaotic waters. Throughout the Bible, chaotic waters is a metaphor for danger and death. And more than this, it's a metaphor for evil and for how evil is always seeking to overwhelm us in the world. And if you think about this, this metaphor, it kind, of, it kind of makes sense. I mean, we as humans, we live on land, but the sea, the sea can be a dangerous place, especially for ancient people. You know, the sea is full of uh, dangerous creatures. Uh, it's powerful. It can swallow you up. And not only the sea, but think about the power of a flood. You cannot control floodwaters. Right? You as a church experienced the great flood of 2010. At the time, I was living in Murfreesboro, and we experienced flooding there as well. But two members of St. George's died in that flood. Uncontrolled, chaotic water is scary. And so again, in the Bible, there is this notion that, that watery chaos represents the powers that seek to overwhelm us, swallow us up, the powers of evil and the powers of death. So... Think about Genesis, and think about how the whole biblical story 
starts. This, this is the, the first two verses of Genesis, and they're, they're up on the screen here. But the Bible starts this way. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was complete chaos, and darkness covered the face of the deep. So the earth is chaos, and darkness covers the face of the deep. And, and commentators say that the deep represents the ocean. So the world here, the first two verses of, of Genesis, is pictured as this chaotic, watery wilderness. It is uninhabitable. And so what does God do? Well, God, He orders creation. And we're, we're told right there in the beginning that He separates the waters and He creates land. He creates order in His creation. And it's an order of peace, beauty, harmony, and above all, safety. Safety from these chaotic waters. Now, we know that this good order of God did not last very long because by Genesis 3, sin has entered the world. Adam and Eve, they sin. And if you read the chapters that immediately follow Genesis 3, what you see is the growth of sin and different expressions of sin. But then you get to the story of Noah and the flood. And what this story is meant to signify is the return of the watery chaos. Right? The watery chaos that God ordered in the beginning, it is back. And once again, it is covering the entire world. Chaos is now back in the world. And so what does God do? Well, God initiates his first rescue operation. God preserves a remnant of his creation on the ark from these terrifying waters. And from this, from this remnant, God creates a people, a people who are meant to model his own heart and mind and who are there to help witness to the world God's good purposes in order for his creation. So after the flood, you have the call of Abraham. Abram becomes Abraham. Uh, and then his grandson Jacob wrestles with God and he receives the name Israel. And, and by the way, Israel means to wrestle with God. So this people, they, they are beautifully named from their engagement with God. And you may, you may ask, you know, why, why are they given this name, which means wrestling with God? And, and the reason why is because we are off kilter. Right? Because of our sin, our engagement with God will always be something like a wrestling match rather than a harmonious dance. Instead of just easily falling into harmony with God, like Adam did before the fall, our engagement with God feels more like a struggle. And anyone who has lived the spiritual life knows this is the case. So God forms this people, Israel, who are struggling with him, struggling to learn his heart and mind. But you know, these chaotic waters, these waters that represent sin and evil, the forces that threaten to, to overcome God's creation, these chaotic waters, they are constantly threatening to overwhelm 
Israel. So you think of their captivity in Egypt. You think about uh, their fighting with the Philistines and, and the other nations. You think about their exile to Babylon. You think about how they were conquered by Rome. And all of these events, these historical events, the great prophets and teachers of Israel understand as expressions of Israel's sin, of their being overcome by the powers that fight against God's rule. So, the ark, and this is important, the ark of the story that begins in Genesis and proceeds through the Old Testament, it's the struggle between the chaotic waters of evil and sin versus God's good purposes for His world. That's the ark. But then we come to the, the climax of the story. And at the climax, a great definitive victory is won. And, and how is this victory won? Well, it is won through the dying and rising of the Son of God. I mean, think about, think about Jesus. Jesus is the one who has the power to calm the sea, that chaotic storm. He can calm the waters. Uh, and by the way, it's, it's fascinating. That story of Jesus calming the sea, it's in all four Gospels, which is kind of unique. And that's because it is such an important story about who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who can walk on the waters. And of course, Jesus' ministry, it culminates in the cross where death and evil, they try to swallow him up. And in doing so, he goes all the way down to the bottom of that watery chaos. But then, he comes back up again. These powers, they cannot drown him. And in his rising, God's order of creation is restored, and, and indeed more than restored. Now again, I, I'm talking all about this, uh, this, this grand arc to the biblical story from Genesis all the way to Jesus and the idea of chaotic waters, how they play into that story, because I think only in light of this overview do we get a sense of what our passage from Revelation means. So let's, let's look at that, that passage now, and, and you, you got it in your bulletin, so pull it out. We're going to look at it. This is how it starts. It says, Then I, and then this is John speaking, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So we'll stop there. John, the great friend of Jesus, the great visionary, he gives us a picture of God's future. And, and, and look at the end of that first line. He says, the sea was no more. What is the sea? Well, the sea is that watery chaos, and we are told that the sea is gone. The sea is no more. And what we are meant to appreciate in this imagery is that the watery chaos has been conquered. And that with the disappearance 
of the first heaven and the first earth, we are meant to see the destruction of the old sinful way of doing things. Those powers that were constantly seeking to overwhelm God's creation, overwhelm God's people, they are gone. The watery chaos is no more. You know, one thing, one thing that I think it's important for us as Christians to always remember, and it it comes through in, in this passage pretty clearly, is we have to remember that as Christians, um, we do not embrace a, a platonic system of the world, or Christianity, Christianity is not a platonic system. And what I mean by that is we do not hold to the supreme value of escaping from this material world, the world of physicality. We are not trying to get to some higher spiritual world. We are not trying to earn our wings. That was Plato's dream. That's the dream of the mystics and philosophers. That is not our dream. In the Bible, we're told that God made everything, and God said it was good. The world is good. This, This is all good. So God has zero intention, zero intention of giving up on his creation. Instead, God says, I'm going to conquer the evil, the death, the chaos that seeks to overwhelm my creation. I mean, think about the prayer, the great prayer that we pray every day, the Lord's Prayer. In that prayer, we do not pray for an escape from the world. No, rather, we pray that God's will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. That's the new heaven and the new earth. That's what this passage is talking about. When we declare our faith in the resurrection, which we do every Sunday in the creed, we are not talking about the existence of our souls in another realm, but rather the resurrection of the body in this world. And you see, all of this, all of this is summed up so beautifully in the image of a new heaven and a new earth with no more watery chaos. Now, look at this. Look, look at what happens when the sea is no more. We are told that the heavenly Jerusalem comes down from heaven in God's realm, in the earthly realm, they marry. This is precisely what John says. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The, The divorce... The divorce that happened in the garden, the fracturing of heaven from earth is overcome. And heaven and earth are brought back together because they were made for each other. Heaven being the dwelling place of God, earth being our dwelling place. Now, one last thing I want to point out to you about this passage and about the promise of our future And I think this is a profound idea, and this may be a new idea to you. Uh, This marriage that occurs once the watery chaos is no more, 
this marriage results in a city. It results in a city, the heavenly Jerusalem. You know, at the beginning of the story, uh, the biblical story in Genesis, there were no cities. At the beginning of the story, there is a garden. And so you might think that the biblical story should end with us returning to the garden, but it doesn't. Instead, it ends with a city, the marriage of God to a city. Now, here's the important thing to see. Cities are the work of human hands. We build cities. Cities represent culture. They represent human culture. And what this passage is saying is that God doesn't just want to marry us as individuals. He doesn't just want to marry his creation, but he wants to marry human culture. He wants to marry the cultures of, of the world, what we have built. It's an amazing, amazing promise. I mean, we know that cities can go bad. There are a lot of bad things that happen in cities. That's why Cain is the founder of cities. But at their best, at their best, what cities do is they bring together everything that makes human life wonderful. Um, community, sports, finance, politics, the arts, you name it. Whatever it is, it is on offer in the city. And God wants to marry it. He wants to bring it in to his manner of being, to marry the cultures that we have built. As one theologian says, the music of Bach will be played in heaven. You see, the, the culture that we build, it matters. Now, our culture, the culture that we build, it has to be purified. It has to be cleansed by God. But God chooses to unite himself to it. And so when we build culture, what we are doing is we are creating the building blocks for the new heavenly Jerusalem. John says, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. That is the dream of the entire Bible from beginning to end. And it has happened through the dying and rising of Christ and through the conquering of the chaotic waters. That vision, that hope, that future is what we celebrate during this Easter season. Amen.